Matthew chapter 8, 1 to 13. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. And again, this is God's holy, inerrant word that endures forever. May he bring his blessing to us as we hear it. You know, last week when we were dealing with Caleb in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, it mentioned, and perhaps some of you didn't realize just how much a foreigner Caleb was. He was probably a first generation in his own line as one following the Lord, but we saw that his father was of one of the nations that had to be cast out. And Caleb comes along uh, looking to the promise that God made to him that he would have an inheritance in the uh, new promised land that God was giving to Israel and that inheritance was given to him. Uh, Caleb was one who exercised great, uh, amazing, astounding faith in light of the uh, people who dwelt in the land, a faith that most of Israel could not and did not exercise, and thus a whole generation of men, 20 years and up, died in the desert over the course of 40 years because of their unbelief and because they did not look in, in saving faith uh, to God and to the Lord uh, of Israel. Uh, Israel's Lacking faith did not stop there, though. As we're going to see and move along in both Joshua and Judges, we're going to see that they lacked the faith 
and thus lack the strength that they should have had in the Lord to continue to push the enemy out of the land of promise. And it ended up that many Canaanite uh, peoples and tribes and some of the nations still remained in the land afterwards. They lacked those prom- uh, that, that faith to believe in those promises of God. And, and you see in our text where I referenced this last week about Christ's worthiness and Christ's authority and ability and willingness to help his people. It, it's that unbelief that I wouldn't say prevented the work of, of Christ in the midst of his people, but it certainly stalled it. We see that even in the life of Jesus as he went throughout the land to show himself as the Messiah who had come, that he came even to his own but could not do many mighty works in their midst because of their unbelief. And that issue of unbelief stalls, if if I can say it in this way, stalls the work of grace that God would otherwise do for us. And in here, Jesus looks at what this centurion uh, does, and, and he's astounded. Here is one of those few times where Jesus stood amazed by the faith of someone. And it's not an Israelite. It's not someone who should have believed, but it is, again, a foreigner, a foreigner to the faith. Uh, one who has come in from the outside and is engrafted into the company of God's people. You know, Jesus spent so much time, time in, in the life of Israel, in, in the various tribes, trying to convince and demonstrate that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah and the Savior of his people. And, and he was met with that resistance of unbelief. But here, as you read in verse 10, here is this one place where we read that Jesus marveled. He was filled with amazement. And he turned to everyone, hearing this testimony of the centurion. In verse 10, he turns to everyone and he says, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Uh, this is, uh, is one of those humorous times, if you will, when that word assuredly, it literally means amen. That's how they would have heard it. <laughs> That's its literal rendering. And, and Jesus, as he hears this man speaking and testifying, he amens him before the congregation. You know, as, as preachers, every now and then, we'll hear that amen when something is preached and proclaimed and somebody wants to add their affirmation because it's affected them so much. Well, here's Jesus doing that very thing with the centurion. And what he does is even more convicting for the people who are hearing. He compares this centurion's faith to Israel. And what is found is that Israel is lacking. And and that, again, comes and meets us as a congregation of the Lord. Where our faith is and the strength of our faith and 
and how we believe and trust in God. What is it that made this centurion's faith stand out? Did he possess some incredible, sensual, visual experience or evidence that moved his faith forward to uh, such a, a climatic event that Jesus would look and say, Amen. <laughs> you know, some people need that sensational visual experience to keep their faith strong. The disciples struggled in their faith. The disciples came to Jesus at one point when they were struggling to cast out a demon. They had done it many times before. And, and they were struggling with this son of a man who, who they could not cast the demon out. And the man comes to Jesus pleading and just desperate to have his son healed. And he says to Jesus, I, I asked your disciples to do it and they, they couldn't. Would you do it? And Jesus looked at him and you remember what he said. He said, do you believe? And what was that man's response? I believe, but help my unbelief. I have a lot more unbelief than I do real faith, if you can put it that way. And, and even afterwards, the disciples came privately to Jesus and they asked him, why could we not cast it out? And what was Jesus' response to that? Because of your unbelief. And, and it's not... Uh, get this, again, with this Roman centurion, it, it's not about how quantitatively you could measure his faith. It wasn't about how much faith he had because Jesus said to his disciples in that moment, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, like if your faith looks like a tiny seed, you could still pray to me and, and, and say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing, listen to this, nothing will be impossible for you. Does your faith apprehend that truth before God? Nothing will be impossible. So that brings us back into this instance as Jesus shows how this centurion's faith stood out and what is wrong with Israel's faith? What is wrong with even his disciples' faith? The trouble with, with our faith is likened unto them. Our faith becomes weak when life gets tough. Our faith becomes diminished when we are going through struggles. Our faith seems to lose its focus because our focus is more on our issues of life than it is on the Lord who is with us. And yet we're told, how do those whom the Lord justifies live? The just live by so how do we come to this measure of great faith? Well, first and foremost, it is a faith that must rest in Christ's authority. And that seems strange for us to, 
to consider because I think most of us here would, would say, well, I'm already there. I know who Jesus is. He's God's son. He is there at the Father's right hand. He has all authority given to him. It's not a question I don't believe in that. But for many of us, it is a question of resting in it. And, and that's one of the, the measures of great faith is that it rests in Christ's authority. You read here in verses 8 and 9, that's exactly where this centurion comes. He is one who, I would say, his, his confidence in, in his ability to receive anything good from God is probably very small. But in faith, he comes to Jesus resting in Christ's authority. And in this way, this, this Gentile, this Roman centurion put to shame so many who were coming to Christ as we saw before with that leper who comes and who worshiped Christ and wanted to be healed. Many others who afterwards would come and bring their sick and ill to Jesus. Many who came uh, uh, to Jesus as though a, a circus had come to town. Let's see what we can get. But did not believe. Did not rest in Christ. This centurion was resting in Christ's authority. And he came to Christ in a bold demonstration of the knowledge of who Jesus was. He not only believed that Jesus was from God. He believed Jesus was God. And believing Jesus was God as the Son of God, that he had an authority, he had power intrinsic to his person. And you can see that. The centurion, you look at how he drew on that authority as he compared it to his own. He said, you you." Only need to speak a word. I understand authority. I'm a man of authority. I have soldiers under me. I say go and they go. Come and they come. Do and they do. Your authority is even more. To understand that, dear Christians. Faith must rest in Christ's authority. And, And such comprehension of Christ's authority to do as he has promised for his people, such comprehension of Christ's authority is essential to faith. We believe he is God. Did you notice, I mentioned it this morning, but I want to mention it again in John 14, as Jesus was trying to deal with the anxiety that was filling the hearts of his disciples. What did he say to them? You believe in God. Believe also in me. And it's not what Jesus was saying. Is it's not that we don't always believe that Jesus is God. But when it comes to the issues of life that fill us with anxiety and worry. Or despair and fear, etc., etc. We tend to miss that truth. Jesus is God. Charles Hodge, a famous theologian, said, The ground of our faith is authority. 
We believe in the authority of God, not simply because we see or we feel a thing to be true. We believe because Christ is true. And it's putting our faith in the person. Not how we feel, or not what we see, or not what we receive, but in the person. And you think about the authority that Jesus has. It's something that he exercised many times in his earthly ministry. In fact, you go forward to the next chapter, chapter 9, and there Jesus meets another man who he is healing, a man who had to be uh, brought to Jesus, who could not walk and, and uh, paralytic. And he looks at him and he says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Notice he didn't come up and touch him and heal him. He came to this man and said, your sins are forgiven. One of the greatest powers, one of the greatest authorities that Jesus has and exercises for us, which we probably take for granted, is, as he says a little further on in verse 9, verse, uh, sorry, in chapter 9, verse 6, that you may know that the Son of Man has power, it's the same word, has authority on earth to forgive sins. I think that's one thing that we take for granted as God's people. We know he has that authority. And, and we almost come at times in a, in, in a very casual manner in our prayers to say, and God, uh, forgive our sins for us as we ask in Jesus' name. That it's almost something that we presume is to be there. But to understand this authority. He has authority to forgive us. And, and that's where our, our, our faith begins to, to rest and, and to grow and to mature in that authority to justify us. My friends, how do you know you are justified? Because Christ can forgive your sins. And you believe in him. It is that authority of Jesus who deals fully with all your sins. As, as John would write in 1 John 2, if anyone sins, listen to these words, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So that when we come to him in that tenth time of sinning with a besetting sin and for the tenth time we say Lord please have mercy I've done it again that feeling that you may have in your heart how can he forgive me again when I've already asked nine times and what do I do now do I come and say well I'm going to just uh, make sure that I'm doing this, this, and this, and this more, more intently so that I will know that he forgives me. No. Faith says, I know he has forgiven me. A wretch as I am, he is the propitiation for all my sins. He has that authority to forgive. Praise God. He's faithful to that. He has authority to to make us children of God. John 1.12. The, 
See how this word is used and how important it is to our faith. We are resting in the authority of Jesus that as many as receive him to get them, he gave the authority, that power, the same word, to become what? Children of God to those who believe in him. You see, our faith is resting in that authority of Christ to forgive, to claim us as children of God. And that's why we can pray. That's why we can pray as little children. That's why we can be like this centurion coming to Jesus and say, Lord, will you come and heal my servant? That's why we can ask anything. John 14, 13 and 14. That's why we can ask anything in Jesus' name. And he will do it. We, we struggle to lay hold of that. But that's his authority. When he says, all authority is given to me. We think of his ability to rule over the world and and to rule over his church. But it's an authority that he opens up to us to say to us, ask and it will be given. Knock and it will be opened to you. Do we believe? And, And based on that authority, do you see this centurion who understanding that authority He just comes to Jesus. And what does he say in verse 8? Just speak the word. That's faith. Just speak the word. And it will be done. I think what we lack the most. Is a word that's used in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 to 16. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 19 to Uh, to verse 22. Listen to this. Because we know that Jesus is our great high priest, because we know he's at the Father's right hand, he is seated in that place and position of authority. He has that power to petition God on our behalf. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 4, uh, verse 16. Because we have this high priest who's gone through the heavens... Let us therefore come, how? Boldly. (laughs) Boldly to that throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go over again to Hebrews 10, verse 19, and, and it's the same thing. We have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Christ, a new and living way that he has consecrated us through the veil that is his flesh. We have this high priest over the house of God. Let's have boldness to enter and draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith. You see, that that faith that claims and knows and believes and trusts in the authority of Christ is a faith that will be bold before his throne. In asking for mercy. And and does that show in our lives? We have that boldness to come. Because Christ has that authority to do. And has said to us. As he says to the leper. As he says to the centurion. I 
will. I am willing. <laughs> the problem, again, rests within our own understanding of faith. Do we trust our Lord? Are we resting in Christ's authority? And there you have that mark. The real measure of great faith asks, supplicates, prayer, prays, comes to that throne of grace seeking mercy because it rests in Christ's authority. Does yours, do you begin there? And, and secondly, as well we see with the centurion, great faith conducts itself in humility. See, this is, this is the merging of these two things. It's, it's a faith that rests in authority but conducts itself in humility. And you see that with the centurion. He comes to the, to the Lord to ask for mercy for his servant. And Jesus is willing to do it. But he, all, he stops him in verse 8 and says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Luke, in his uh, rendition of this same scene, brings it out more vividly where the centurion is keenly aware of the stigma that Gentiles bore to the Jews and not wanting to put Jesus in that place of compromise, sent out a Jewish delegation to meet Christ and to invite him to come and heal his servant. He didn't want to offend Jesus by his presence. And it wasn't simply because of his station in life that moved him to confess this humility. Again, it was because of who Jesus was. Your great faith conducts itself in humility because we recognize who we are before a holy God, even as his children. What are we? We're sinners. We are unworthy of anything good. And that humility needs to very much be a part of faith. John the baptizer, he echoed these same words. When it came to Christ, he even said, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to even tie his sandals, the lowliest of, of work that servants could do. I'm not worthy of even the lowliest of services to provide for this man. Peter would say the same thing. In Luke 5, when Jesus performed that miracle and filled their boat with fish and he looks at Jesus and he says, depart from me. I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy of your presence. And the same thing is expressed by the prodigal son who would come and in repentance seek the father's mercy. But what was, what was his state of heart? I am not worthy to be called your son. It's not a contradiction, not even a paradox. It's a frame of mind and, and, and spirit before the Lord. 
that we understand that we are sinful, lowly creatures in the presence of Almighty God. And and why is humility so important to great faith? It's because this humility must subdue our pride. Our, Our pride that often interferes with and stirs up unbelief in our hearts. You see, true humility never stopped anyone from seeking Christ. True humility in faith drives them to Christ, just as it did with this centurion who humbly seeks Christ's help. It is a proud heart that does not seek the Lord's help. And that pride can find itself rooted in our own life. It's a pride that looks to self-sufficiency and self-righteousness or even even worse, presumption. And it wars against our faith because our pride prevents us from comprehending the need we have of Christ and thus hinders our prayers in seeking him. And it even goes so far as to falsely expect the Lord's favor. How many people do we hear uh, in the unbelieving world that, that presume that God should be good to them because they themselves are naturally good? And, and that kind of pride just counteracts against what real grace is about, the undeserved love and goodness from the Lord. And, and here is, is where faith comes in. It recognizes our undeserved unworthiness before the Lord. And yet knowing, knowing who God the Father is, knowing who Jesus is, knowing the character and the authority of our Lord, that humble faith comes and seeks his goodness. It stirs up. We're proud, if I can use this phrase, where proud faith presumes God's activity. A humble faith takes nothing for granted because it recognizes nothing is deserved and comes and asks out of mercy. And that kind of humility is faith at work because it believes not in our own worthiness. That humility believes in the Lord's goodness. Isn't that that where it rests? Don't we hear it from Psalm 100? Know that the Lord, he is God. And what's the next line? Know that the Lord, he is God. You see, a humble, a humble faith knows that truth. You look at this centurion. It, it, it is so strange in their time and day. But this, this again, I believe, is what shows that this centurion believed in Christ. He had faith in the Lord Jesus. He comes to him out of compassion and love for a servant. And as many commentators note, 
It is a strange thing for a Roman centurion to be so concerned for a slave that was probably dying. But here is one who is filled with a compassion for even one of the lowly servants he has in his midst. And, and he came not knowing what Christ's response would be. But there was this faith that trusted the Lord to do what was going to be good. And that, that's the, the thing about humility. It, it knows we are unworthy even of the crumbs that would fall from the Lord's table. But it believes in the Lord's goodness. And that's where he comes with these commands. Go and he goes. Come and he comes. Do and he does. He says, I, I, I understand what it is to command things. And for people who have to do what I call them to do without knowing necessarily why. He comes to Christ for that very thing and say, Lord, you are good. Would you do good for me? And that goodness of the Lord is, again, connected to his authority. Think about that again with Romans 8.28, which most of you know. We know that all things work together for for good. Why? Why do you know that? Because the Lord has said, I am good. God is good. And especially for those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose, he's at work for your good. We don't always know what the Lord has planned. But that ought never to stall us in our faith to seek the help of the Lord our God because we know He is good. And we know He will work everything for our good. And whatever the outcome is, we can look and say, God has been good to me. I thank the Lord. And that is the humility of faith. It is a humility that trusts the Lord. And when Jesus hears this centurion saying to him, you don't need to come, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. What does Jesus say? Verse 13, go your way as you have believed. So let it be done for you. That's our God. That's the one who is there at the Father's right hand interceding for you tonight. That's the one who has ascended to that throne of grace to so intercede and minister for you that you are saved to the uttermost. The centurion looked to Jesus' authority. He walked humbly before Christ trusted his goodness and his faith was great what makes faith great again is not from some felt goodness about ourselves uh, for doing what is right what makes faith great is trusting in the Lord trusting that the Lord has that authority and humbly recognizing our unworthiness in light 
of the goodness of our God. And so we trust him. I, I close with these words from J.C. Ra. Great faith in Christ is most precious in God's sight. But like most precious things, it is rare. Faith in Christ appears a small and simple thing to the people of the world. But faith in Christ is how true Christians stand, live, and walk, and overcome the world. Do you have great faith? (laughs) Even if it's small like a mustard seed. Trust in the Lord and his goodness and see what he will do for you. Let's pray.